response, hymn 28, stanza 5 and 7. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to the Lord Jesus in Matthew 16, starting at verse 24, following Jesus as a disciple is a costly endeavor. And because of this cost, many people have walked away from Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 16, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, when believers place their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, they should realize that Christ calls them to deny their personal comforts, to deny their personal dreams, to deny their personal agendas, in order to prioritize and pursue God, his glory, his kingdom, and his will. Those are the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. So following Jesus means putting Jesus first. It means losing our lives for Jesus' sake. So what does that mean? It means losing the, the hypothetical lives that we could have led had we not encountered the gospel of grace. We could have followed our worldly desires. We could have pursued health, wealth, power, pleasure, But Christ says, follow me, deny yourself. So following Jesus means we gladly become like John the Baptist. He says of Jesus in John 3, he sees Jesus approaching and he says, he must become greater, I must become less. It's all about Jesus. It's not about me. That's a summary of the life of discipleship. Of course, to the outside observer, Christ's call to discipleship, it might seem like a raw deal. And yet, as Jesus showed and as the rest of Scripture teaches, Christ always gives infinitely more than he calls us to deny. He gives himself. He grants eternal life in abundance, beginning in this life already. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, he says. Well, here in Matthew 19, we encounter this tragic story of the rich young man. He seemed so pious, didn't he? He comes up to Jesus, he respects Jesus as a rabbi, and he says in verse 16, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus told him to keep God's commandments, and Jesus gives them a summary of the commandments, and then the young man replies ever so sincerely, Well, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? In the Gospel of Mark, there's a similar version of this encounter. And in that version, Mark tells us that Jesus looked at this young man and loved him. And so his response isn't harsh. Rather, Jesus knows his heart. He knows that this man worships money. And Jesus says to him, if you would be perfect, go Sell what you possess and give to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven and and come follow me. That's the call to discipleship. Deny yourself, follow me. 
But at this stage in his life, the cost of following Jesus was too high. The Lord knew his heart. This is why the Lord focused on his wealth, because that is where the man put his faith. The rich man loved his money and possessions more than Jesus. If only this man had heard Christ's words in Matthew 16, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So as readers, we don't know anything else about this, this man. We're, we're left wondering if this young man maybe eventually, maybe after years, by the grace of God, becomes a follower of Christ. We don't know what happens to him. But clearly, this exchange between Jesus and the rich young man, it was a jarring experience for the watching disciples. We read in chapter 19 that they are astonished. So they ask Jesus, well, who then can be saved? I mean, this guy, he keeps all the commandments. This man looks like he has everything together, religiously speaking. If this guy can't be saved, then who can be? And so Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So at this point, if you've never read the Gospel of Matthew, you might be excused for expecting a a conversation between Jesus and his disciples about how God is able to change hearts, how by the power of his grace and spirit, he causes new spiritual birth and faith, how he can make us love Jesus more than anything else. You might be be excused to expect that, but, but that's not what we find in Matthew's account. Instead, what we get is the seemingly random question from out of left field from Peter. And incidentally, this is one of those internal proofs for the historical accuracy of the Gospels. If the Gospels were fabricated, then Peter's embarrassing question probably wouldn't be recorded here because he's made to look like a fool. We see Peter, Peter the Rock, with his warts on display. Peter says, see? We have left everything and followed you. What then shall we have? It's like Peter hadn't heard a single word Jesus had just spoke because he was too busy comparing himself to everybody else in the crowd. This whole section in Matthew is very fascinating. Beginning already in Matthew 16, we have Peter's confession. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and since then, we, we see these, this development of the progression about the nature of discipleship. In Matthew 18, we find the disciples, they're arguing and they're bickering among themselves about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Who's going to sit at Jesus' right hand? And so Jesus says, Jesus sees a child nearby and he says, you've got to be like a child. Stop trying to be so great, Peter. And now here in chapter 19, Peter asks another foolish question. What are we going to get? What's our reward? Well, surely now it was time for Jesus to set the record straight. For all of those followers who, from the outside, seemed to have given up everything to follow him. Would their reward in heaven be greater than other followers of Jesus who didn't give up as much? Or followers who hadn't punched the clock of faithful service for quite as many years? 
But then Jesus gives an answer. But it's not the response Peter anticipated. Because implied in Peter's question is an answer. Peter thinks it's a rhetorical question. The answer Peter expected to receive would have been, well, of course, Peter, thanks for the question. Even if if this rich young ruler will follow me later in life, your reward will be way greater because you've given up more, Peter. You've suffered more, Peter. You've followed me longer. Your reward will be great. That's what Peter was expecting, but that's not what Jesus says. Look at verse 29 from chapter 19. Jesus says, Everyone who has left houses or brothers and sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Think about that line. That's the same last line that we read in chapter 20, verse 16. The last will be first and the first last. These are bookends to what we're going to have a look at in this parable. This is a segue from a teaching that Jesus is trying to deliver, and then he transitions into this story, trying to illustrate a spiritual truth. With that last sentence, Jesus, this messianic storyteller, he launches into yet another brilliant parable. Chapter 20, verse 1, what does he say? For the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who went out early to find laborers for his vineyard. So Jesus, picture this, he's telling this story in northern Israel. It's the region of Galilee. While we don't have very many vineyards here in Chilliwack, maybe some of you have gone to Niagara-on-the-Lake or to the Okanagan Valley, there's, there's vineyards all over the place, grapes. They're growing everywhere. So this makes for a natural setting for a great story. And now, while it's not mentioned explicitly within this parable, it appears as though the timing of this parable would have been around the harvest season. Now, virtually every detail in this parable would have matched ancient reality. Jesus, what he does in his, in his parables is he takes from everyday life and he builds his parables around that. Even today, it's not much of a stretch to make sense of the story. During harvest time, there could be the sudden need for, for extra help, for extra workers, for time-sensitive work to, to get the crops in, to bring the grapes in. Sometimes we see the same kind of thing around here when extra workers or migrant workers come to help out with landscape companies or farms or nurseries to help pitch in with the time-sensitive work. Now, 2,000 years ago, it was pretty simple to find help. You just go to the marketplace to find some laborers. And as the parable states, one day during the harvest, early in the morning, presumably around 6 a.m., he pops into ha- the owner pops into town to find labor help. And sure enough, as he expected, there's a number of men waiting for the opportunity. And so together they agreed on a fair compensation for labor. One denarius for 12 hours worth of work. That's a pretty standard rate of wages. Now keep in mind that this parable, it's it's a parable explanation to Peter's question about the reward of following Jesus. 
This all might be obvious, but we'll say it anyway. The vineyard owner is God. The vineyard owner is the Lord Jesus. In the parable's immediate context, the workers called to work in the vineyard at 6 a.m., these are the first hired hands in the kingdom of heaven. Who are the first hired hands in the kingdom of heaven? This is the 12 disciples. The 12 disciples, they considered the cost of discipleship. They had agreed that the terms of kingdom employment were more than fair. But in today's context, the first brought into the vineyard for work could be those who answer the call of discipleship early in life. But what's so interesting about this parable is that discipleship, among other things, it implies the privilege of working in the harvest fields of the kingdom. To be a disciple is to be a worker in the vineyard. Now, I don't know if you've ever done this, but so often in our communities, this is what we'll hear. The work of pastors, the work of missionaries, the work of elders and deacons and office bearers, and, and we'll throw in Christian school teachers. That's kingdom work. But not when I'm doing my, my framing, not when I'm doing my landscaping or working as a receptionist or changing dirty diapers or doing schoolwork. And we draw this divide between the sacred and the secular. But that doesn't exist in the scriptures. If you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus, you are a laborer in the vineyard. You are a laborer in the kingdom. Everything you do, everything, you represent the king wherever you go. In his grace, Jesus says to us, I've saved you from your sins. I've delivered you from the kingdom of darkness, and I brought you into my kingdom, my vineyard. Follow me. Find abundant life in me. I have harvest work for all of you to do. In Matthew 9, it was also Jesus who said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And that's what the vineyard owner discovers in Matthew 20. He didn't hire enough help at 6 a.m. And so the vineyard owner goes back to town to find more workers. But let's pay attention to a very easily overlooked detail here. He doesn't send the foreman of the vineyard, who we read about. He doesn't send the general manager or the human resources manager. No, the owner himself goes looking for laborers each time. He does this every time. You could argue that Christ... The vineyard owner, he does this everywhere the gospel is opened. Every time the gospel is preached. This afternoon, you are hearing the voice of the vineyard owner. He's looking for workers for his vineyard. He's looking for workers for the kingdom of heaven. But do you want to know what's so interesting and encouraging? He doesn't only bring workers into the kingdom at the crack of dawn. Look at verse 3 from chapter 20. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he says to them, you, go out into the vineyard. Now, idle, it doesn't necessarily imply laziness. In the first century context, it could very well have been that these were small, 
hobby farm vineyard owners who had already completed their work, but they were looking to get hired out to supplement their income. Or maybe they just weren't there at 6 a.m. But what is true is that they were idle in the sense that they needed work. And in an act of grace, the vineyard owner gives them the very kind of work that they were created and redeemed to do. Kingdom work in his vineyard. Now at this point, I'm not sure if you've noticed it, at this point there's a subtle shift in the parable. There's this building of suspense that happens. We don't read, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius, no, all we read is, whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. But what was right? What compensation would they receive? What was fair in the mind of the owner? We're not told. And the suspense in Jesus' kingdom parable, it continues to build. In verse 5, going out again about the sixth hour, now it's lunchtime, it's 12 o'clock, he's looking for workers. In the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m. in the afternoon, he's looking for workers. He's not even telling them at this point what they're going to get paid or whether they will get paid. And then at the 11th hour, we're talking 5 p.m. That's one hour before quitting time. He goes out and he finds people standing. And he says to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You, go into the vineyard too. What are they going to get paid? We don't know. In his commentary on Matthew's Gospel, the Bible scholar F.D. Bruner, he writes this. The different times of day suggested to ancient commentators different chronological ages. Youth, middle age, maturity. The Lord calls the young as well as the old. Sometimes we think the Lord is not as interested in calling the old as he is the young. But in this parable, the Lord's many goings out calling even those who can only work a short time, it corrects ageism. If the master comes looking for workers late in the day, it can only mean that there is great urgency about getting in the harvest. The Lord wants workers in his harvest more than he wants almost anything in the world. You could be at the 11th hour of your life, But in the Lord's eyes, there's discipleship work for you to do in the kingdom. That is so good for all of us to remember. There's always work to do. There is no useless person in the kingdom of heaven. The concept of retirement, it's a foreign concept in Christ's kingdom vineyard. You could be in the 11th hour of your life. You, go out into the vineyard. There's work to do. But what about payment? Well, everything comes to a climax in verse 8. It's so evident that Jesus was such a master storyteller by the way that he arranges the climax. Payment, it begins with the last first. Take a look at the verses beginning at verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages beginning with the last up into the first. 
And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Think about that. I know there's a number of business owners here. How many of you would actually do that? How many of you would pay a full day's wage to somebody who started working one hour before quitting time? It's incredible. It's not at all fair. There's a familiar, a familiar pastor. He has a favorite saying. He says, the beauty of grace is that it makes life unfair. The beauty of grace is that it makes life unfair. The generosity and grace of this vineyard owner, it's unparalleled. It's unprecedented. Who else would pay such extravagant wages to workers who only worked one hour? Aren't you immediately reminded of Good Friday? Good Friday, the thief hanging on the cross next to Jesus. That thief, he and a friend, they hung on each side of Christ, and they were both hurling insults at Jesus along with the crowd. But finally, at the 11th hour of his life, as one thief sees death approach, he's given eyes to see who Jesus really is, his Savior from sin, his King. With God, all things are possible. Luke 23, the thief says, Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Here's your denarius. This man had done nothing. His arms were fixed on the cross, just like Jesus Christ. He was hanging naked. He gave him nothing, no service, no work in the vineyard. And up until the 11th hour of his life, he was blaspheming the Son of God. Remember me. Here's your denarius. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 103, verse 10. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. The beauty of grace is that it makes life unfair. Let's come back to Matthew 20. The laborers, they're hired at 6 a.m., they see this extravagant 11th hour grace of the vineyard owner. And sounding very much like Peter's comment in Matthew 19, well, what then shall we have? They're excited. They see the generosity of the vineyard owner and they expect a big reward. But what did we read in verse 10? Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. In their grumbling response, aren't you reminded of the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son? Boys and girls, do you remember the story of the prodigal son? The wayward prodigal son had returned. He had wished, literally wished his father dead. After squandering his inheritance, after forfeiting every right to be welcomed home, 
He returns home. He comes home. He's rehearsing in his mind this, this repentant story. He's going to ask for forgiveness. But he doesn't even get the chance to get the words out of his mouth because the father runs to him. The father runs to him, embraces him, kisses him, and they begin celebrating. But what about the elder brother? Let's read about that in Luke 15. Turn there with me. Luke 15. Let's, let's read about the elder brother's response. Luke 15. The prodigal son has returned. They're celebrating. Beginning at verse 25. His older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. He begged, he pleaded. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was a lost and is found. The elder brother, those hired first in the vineyard, even Peter, they demonstrate a dangerous way of thinking about the kingdom. It's something many of us Christians do. We all do it. We grumble at the master. Too often we have a sense of entitlement that we deserve more or we have self-pity that we have a cross to bear like nobody else. We act like the elder brother and the first hired workers. Now, of course, our grumbling and our entitlement, it's not rooted in injustice, as if God cheats us from what we agreed to. We answered the call. We counted the cost of discipleship. We agreed up front to the terms of grace. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. But then we compare ourselves to other people. We, we compare ourselves to the God's 11th hour grace that he gives to other people. We grumble that God would extend the same grace of salvation to others as he does to us. I've served as an elder for years. I've given lots of money to the church. I've done this and I've done that. What have they done? We bore the burden of the day. We bore the scorching heat. When we do that, we miss the point of what it means to live by grace and to follow Jesus. Regardless of the time of day, when we are called to follow Jesus, when we are hired into the kingdom vineyard, we aren't put into a position to earn salvation as a reward. We don't earn God's love. In fact, the very act of being placed in the vineyard is itself an act of grace. It just means time with Jesus. Being put to work in the vineyard is the reward. 
And now the denarius, that's representative of eternal life. We've been redeemed from idleness in the marketplace. We've been given a task that has eternal implications. That is in itself part of God's gracious hundredfold reward to us. And so the only posture of a kingdom worker in the vineyard when it comes to receiving our wages is gratitude. That's it. It's gratitude. That's the only posture. Praise God. Thank you. Romans 6 says, for the wages of sin is death. That's what you earn in the marketplace when you're idle. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The tenderness of the father in Luke 15, which we just read, it's, it's matched by the landowner in Matthew 20. Look at verse 13 from Matthew 20. There's no rebuke, but a gospel corrective. There's grace meeting the grumbling heart. Friend. Friend. That's an unusual way for a first century landowner to address a grumbling employee. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? You know, the question we're being asked through this parable is similar. Is God not sovereign? Is God not sovereign to do as he pleases, with whom he wishes, as he wills? Is God not good? Is God not righteous? Is God not just? Is God not abounding in steadfast love, mercy, and grace? Brothers and sisters, God's thoughts are not our thoughts. But God is so gracious. Our Savior is so gracious. He is never obligated to explain his ways and purposes to us, and yet he assures us again and again that he is generous and just. So what does this mean for us today? First, it's a call to faith. Shortly, we're going to hear Tanis profess her faith. Tanis, regardless of whether you're part of the 6 a.m. crew or you've been hired at some later hour in your life, God has been good to you. His timing, it's always right. Your Savior, your Master, Jesus Christ, is so gracious. You have the incredible privilege of working in the harvest fields of the kingdom. And as a follower of Jesus, you are called to deny yourself and to get to work in the vineyard. But what about others here? The call to faith remains. Whatever hour of life you are in, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Wherever you are in your journey of faith, even if you've been attending church your entire life, if you do not know the Lord Jesus, if you've been going through the motions, living a life as a hypocrite, 
there's grace for you. All the sins of the past you can ca- that you carry, you can surrender them at the foot of the cross. There's a denarius waiting for you. And then there's a call to humble gratitude. If we, who were the first to believe in Jesus, begrudge his 11th hour grace and generosity, well, then the last will be first, and the first last. We quoted F.D. Bruner earlier. We quote him again. The lasts become first by sheer grace, not by work performed. The firsts become last because of bloated self-consciousness, not from failure to do good works. Lasts become first by grace. Firsts, they become last by hubris, by pride. And so this afternoon, let's pray. Let's pray that God continues to show his lavish 11th hour grace again and again. Let's celebrate with thankfulness that we have been brought into the kingdom by grace. God is good. Let's pray.